You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. In this episode, we're looking ahead into 2019 and discussing what various experts think will happen to the property market and interest rates. And for those of you that want to take advantage of a buyer's market in 2019, please stick around because I'll give a full rundown on what you need to do to get ready if you want to get finance. We started recording this podcast in April 2018 and over the past nine months we've interviewed a wide range of well-respected real estate professionals, property experts and market commentators. We've learned so much from our guests and they've all helped us to understand the dynamics of the market and buyer behaviour on a deeper level. And in this episode we're drawing on all of this information in order to give you some perspective on what's ahead. And as an aside, the feedback that we've had from your listeners has been incredible. It's not call the elephant in the room for nothing. You really are saying that this is the stuff that nobody talks about. So keep letting us know what you'd like to hear more of. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. So the big question everybody's asking is what is going to happen in 2019? And from where I stand, you know, the doom and gloom media reports are extremely unhelpful because they simply peddle fear and they don't seek to understand the nuances of the market. And the first thing that we need to be aware of is that there is no such thing as an Australian property market. And while the boom was going strong, really it was only Sydney and Melbourne that were booming. And now the reverse is happening. Sydney and Melbourne have overshot the mark. And now that's all anybody wants to talk about. But it's not really the case, is it? In fact, I mean, parts of Brisbane are doing really well. I actually saw a Brisbane boom on the TV the other day and I thought it was quite amusing, you know, because there are parts of the market that, you know, and, you know, Adelaide is a, you know, it's a little steady performer. It's not really going to win any awards. But, you know, you look at its long-term growth, it's pretty much this nice little steady red line. And, you know, and there's, so you know, Hobart's, you know, hit, you know, all-time highs. Um, <laughs> well, maybe it'll be the gloom. Don't go chasing Hobart, no. please, people. <laughs> no, these aren't, these aren't invested tips. But at least it gives the people a very first-level look at it's not one market. You know, it's not the Australian property market. Now we've got different capital cities. Now we can keep on going deeper and deeper, but, you know, a lot of the doom and gloom is thinking that everything's falling and mm. and, and it isn't and it's never going to be the case. You Unless know? you're in Perth. Well, yeah. <laughs> and I Poor still... old Perth. They've never really recovered from the last decade and then bang, they've been hit again. Well, I mean, they doubled in three years, you know. It was such big growth. I think it was 2004 to seven. don't quote me, but I think it was, you know, maybe six to eight. Um you know, it was doubling the market in three years and it's had taken a long time for things to kind of catch up. Now, particularly when we talk about Brisbane and Adelaide, Peter Koulizos actually told us to expect this in episode 33. There's a lot of concern, I guess, at the moment because we've had this six years of boom and when things are booming, everything's going up and everyone's happy and the banks are happy. But now the media's done a flip and now it's talking about gloom. And so just recently we had the 60 Minutes report and there's lots of negative everywhere you look. What's your view on what's happening out there in the property market more generally? Okay, so Sydney has had it good in the last six years. Melbourne's had it good for the last five, but there are plenty of other places where it's their time to shine. So if you're looking to invest for the next five to 10 years, and this is generally speaking because I'm sure some pockets are going to do better than others, right? Sydney and Melbourne probably wouldn't be the places that I would be investing in because they've already had their good time, but I'd be looking at areas that haven't, and my two picks would be Adelaide or Brisbane because for the last 10 years they haven't done much, and there will be a a time when there is so much underlying demand, there'll be a tipping point where property prices will march on. It's very hard in this current climate with investors finding it very difficult to borrow money, but it won't be like this forever. You know, once the Royal Commission is over and done with and, and some uh, long-term initiatives are, are implemented by the banks, then I'm, sh- I'm sure it'll be much easier for investors and owner-occupiers to borrow money. More demand comes in, 
prices go up. I think we need to draw a distinction, though, between houses and apartments in Brisbane and also point out the need to be as close to the CBD in these cities as possible, closer than you would in, say, Sydney or Melbourne, really due to their smaller populations. And Peter also discussed gentrification at length and how his research has shown this to be one of the strongest factors that underpin price growth. But we got more insights, particularly into Brisbane, from Pete Wargen in episode 24. Yeah, and if you look over a decade, I mean, people talk about housing bubbles and affordability. Well, look at apartment prices in Brisbane are lower than they were 10 years ago. So, you know, I'm sure locally people don't know what all the fuss is about. But, Um, I mean, Brisbane's not all about apartments, right? So, you know, when we step away from the apartments, you mentioned there about the investor market, another place near Brisbane where some famous, I guess they call themselves buyer's agents, go Mm. and invest in areas like Logan and they get people to buy from the city in Brisbane. What's your thoughts on that type of investing? Yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, it's in a similar vein to what we already talked about. Um, you can you can very easily find a 7% yield in those kind of areas. And actually, um, you know, it's interesting because Brisbane's not a mature housing market like um, London or some of the other big global cities. And it's really all about for homeowners, the inner 10K, everyone wants to be close to the city. Uh, the interesting thing with the Logan Joe is not actually that far from Brisbane. So um, arguably over a longer time frame, it might do reasonably well. The question mark for me is, well, how much do you want those headaches? Because um, you know, <laughs> those high yields often come with more difficult tenants, uh, late payments, all of that kind of thing. It's a different socio-demographic mix. And yeah, you've got to have a bit more tolerance for that kind of thing. The thing is, um, a lot of the the uh, stuff that's marketed to investors, uh, so Gold Coast, there's a lot of stuff that yep. always happens there. It's a real boom-bust cycle. Mm. Uh, but that said, there are some very good investment opportunities in Brisbane. And if you're looking at point in the cycle at which to buy, um, arguably after a rough few years after the floods and so on, you can find good, relatively good yields um, and good investment opportunities. But... The thing in Brisbane is the scarce commodity is the land, Mm. the land that's close to the city where people want to live. So if you're going to do it, I wouldn't be looking at high-rise apartments or or just generally anything that's marketed to investors, so house and land packages. You really want to buy stuff where there's an owner-occupier market. So the types of places, just to give you examples, where we buy the inner west of Brisbane, for example, um, so suburbs like Indrapilly and Tawong and Turinga, there's some great school catchments, great connectivity to the city, you're talking sort of five or six k's out. But the types of stuff we look to buy is, is Queenslanders that are close to their use-by date, so they can be rented out today. But the real value is in raising those properties up and turning them into executive homes, sort of the five-bed, three-bath properties. Because if you do that type of property well with careful planning and execution. I mean, you could almost name your own price for that type of property, yep. and yeah. particularly people moving up from the southern states, and they see a lot of value in that upgrader market. Yeah, that, that's the real gentrification piece too, isn't it? As those areas are obviously becoming much more in demand and the scarcity of the land, then, yeah, people want to live closer to where they work and where the, the, it's, the neighbourhoods are and the lifestyle and all that sort of stuff. It's the same sort of... Things. So you're seeing that same sort of movement because that's what's happened in Sydney and Melbourne, really. I mean, we haven't been jacking up Queenslanders on stilts and <laughs> doubling the size of the house, but not in the same way. But it's the same principle, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, there's certain school catchments that you want to yep. be in. Mm. Uh, that's, be, mm. you know, historically, uh, Brisbane's not a dense city, so that wasn't such a big thing. But increasingly, as more and more people come into the inner suburbs because of the apartment construction, there's more demand for... Uh, particularly for those state high schools. Um, so there's certain school catchments where um, house prices are outperforming. and But, uh, yeah, it, it comes down to the, the family-appropriate type yep. of stock. That's the thing because mm. that's still the biggest buying demographic in Brisbane um, and it's where there's a scarcity of good quality assets that you know, if you deliver the right type of property and you get competition, uh, there, was a, there was an auction the other day in Gordon Park, which is a, you know, pretty good suburb, five or six Ks out. And there was more than 200 people at the auction. Wow. Um, yeah. And the, the big thing at the moment is this Hampton style, which, mm. uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's not everyone's cup of tea. But, yeah, it's amazing you see the, um, the, the amount that people are prepared to pay for yep. that type of property. So, <laughs> But Brisbane's a very patchy market, I think, more than any other mm. capital city. We've got flood zones, yeah. loads of high-rise <laughs> apartments. 
you know, there's a lot of decrepit old housing stock with spiders underneath and all of that kind of Queensland style property. So yeah, yeah the median price growth doesn't often reflect the good and the bad because there's plenty of it. It's actually really interesting to see that these markets seem unaffected by the credit squeeze and the Sydney-Melbourne media terror campaign. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of uh, people still got money. They can still go and borrow money from the bank and people still hit certain stages of their life where they want to go and own a home. And, um, you know, and if, if the population in that city is rising and you know more people are moving into home ownership, you can see why there's still growth in parts of the market. And um, There's still investors. There's a lot of actually, you know, uh, Sydney and Melbourne investors buying in those markets. So it's not just owner-occupiers. Yeah, I think that's... Um, yeah, definitely the case. You know, I've, I've got clients buying in the inner rings of Brisbane, you know, because there's great opportunities up there because of the affordability price point. And we've been talking about that. I mean, buying in an area for affordability is dangerous, okay? You know, we've got lots of episodes around that. Um, so you've got to be very, very careful. And I think that's one of the reasons people have gone up and bought apartments in Brisbane because they think, oh, it's really affordable. But the reality is that there's no market for it. And so that's why they've been falling in price. But the houses are a different different kettle of fish. And that's what Pete does talk about in quite some detail there. We got an excellent overview um, from him. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, the, the, when we're talking about investing up there, we're looking nowhere near apartments and, you know, it's, it's always houses and it's inner rings and it's, you know, four or five K from the city. It's not 40 K from the city. And, um, you know, when I say price point, we're talking maybe seven to 900,000 where, yeah. you know, to get a good asset in Melbourne or Sydney at that price point, you know, it's just the probably struggle. not possible. Yeah. And look, so obviously investors can still borrow money, some investors, clearly. Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, there is a bit of a two-tier market. You know, there's people who have who've thought about what they can do and they're running a pretty tight ship. You know, they're not got after pay. You know, they're not, they're paying all their payments on time. Um, you know, they've got good solid jobs. Um, you know, they're not, you know, working part-time. Um, you know, they've been, you know, got good track record with, with everything basically. And, you know, banks, if they've got a deposit and they've got a good history and they're not got lots of debt, then of course a bank's going to lend you the money still. So it's not like everyone can't borrow money. There's, mm. It's just people who haven't got their ducks lined up or have got lots of credit cards or they've missed payments or you know, all the things that, you know, probably would have been looked past before. Um, you know, the other thing is around living expenses. I mean, we will talk a bit more about it, but, you know, the people who are probably got big credit card bills and are living extravagant lives, you know, that's not possible anymore, you know, yeah. to go and borrow money. So it's usually people who are being a bit more conservative there as well. Which is interesting because that literally is the problem that basically we've had easy lending practices in the past uh, where people who haven't really been that fiscally careful uh, or have overextended themselves have been able to actually borrow money very easily. And of course, all those practices have actually fueled an investor boom. And now that APRA's restrictions have had their desired impact of taking the heat out of the investor market overall and the flow on effect, of course, of the Royal Commission into banking has meant that for the past 18 months, owner occupiers have also felt that credit squeeze. So those who actually aren't looking at their spending and their credit cards and all that sort of stuff are struggling, you know. And so it's taking people a lot longer to get themselves financially in a position to be able to borrow. And that's what you're going to talk about a little bit later in this episode in terms of giving you guys the tips of how to get yourself in that position. But the thing is that consumer sentiment is also taking a beating. And Interestingly enough, we've just been saying that, that there are people that have actually been setting themselves up well and actually going ahead and being able to borrow money and still being able to buy property and they're choosing to go elsewhere to do that. And I do keep hearing from mortgage brokers that there are plenty of people willing to buy property. You know, they simply just can't get access to finance that even people who are deemed low credit risk are having to jump through hoops. I mean, how often are you finding that in your business? It is definitely the case. And, you know, up to, I wrote a blog, I think it was March, 2017. I looked at it just the other day and I it was, I was over 20 things that I, that APRA had changed to bank lending policy. This is in 2017 and changes started actually in 2014 and then incremental changes. First they targeted like foreign investors and then they targeted investors and then they targeted interest only. And then they targeted, you know, it just kept going on and on and on. There was over 20 changes. Um, but then since 2017 and the Royal Commission kicked off, what the Royal Commission has really highlighted is, is living expenses. And they basically asked the banks, how are you verifying living expenses? And they said, well, we're not. Um, and they said, well, is that really good enough? And they said, well, no, 
You know, if, if, <laughs> if someone basically borrows money from you and then they lose money on an investment, is that their fault because you lent them the money or is it your fault because you didn't verify their expenses? And that scared the hell out of the banks. Um, and in June this year, they basically shut down lending and they said, look, we're not going to lend anyone because we're just so scared of getting in trouble. Um, things have changed right now, but I, my big worry is when the Royal Commission does come through on the 1st of Feb is next year that every loan that gets applied for, banks have to verify your living expenses and they have to do a three months um, check of everything you spend. And so this this will have a big impact on everyone. And this is, you know, um, going to impact- It's like going on a diet, isn't it? I mean, basically you're going to go on a monetary diet or spending diet. It is, but unfortunately, <laughs> are people very good at diets? Are people very good at, you know, making cutbacks and sacrifices in life? And, um, you know, people will do it. And so, you know, they'll take a time for people to adjust their living. Mm. But sometimes you can't, you know, you're so ingrained in, you know, the activities and socialising and all these sort of things that to step away for three months is a big deal. And unfortunately, what I think is going to happen in 2019 is when banks look at what people spend, it's going to be a lot more than they've been using. And, um, you know, unless you've got your ducks lined up next year, you're going to find it really hard to, to borrow money. And look, one of the other things that has changed is that the banks have been using a higher interest rate, you know, to stress test, I guess, people's uh, uh, serviceability, right? So, you know, whereas, you know, you might be paying 4% now for an unoccupied home loan, just roughly, you know, they're saying, well, what if interest rates go up to 8%, you know, can you still afford that? And of course, you know, there is a fair amount of chatter around whether interest rates are going to go up or not. And they obviously play a part in consumer sentiment. And that's one of the many economic levers that we talked about with the kook in episode 43. So when the Reserve Bank comes out and says that interest rates are likely to go up, is that jawboning? Yes, it, it's, it is jawboning. The last thing, not the last thing, one of the last things that they'd want to see is a rebound in house prices. So at the mm. moment, they're quite comfortable with this fall in yeah. house prices. We've seen Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe and other officials sort of saying that you know, after the, such a big run-up in prices, that doubling basically in most cities uh, over the last five or six or seven years, a five or 10% falls neither here nor there. Mm. And, and that's true. And that's why I'm not as pessimistic as as others in, in the market in terms mm. of the house price decline. But uh, so they, they wouldn't want to see the discussion being, oh, lower interest rates, so that people, when they go to the next option, yeah. say, well, I'm currently paying about 4%, but if there's a rate cut, I only pay three and a half, so I'll bid an extra 20 grand, 30 grand, 40 grand on the house. So they're trying to avoid that euphoria in um, those animal spirits we economists like to talk about yeah. when we're <laughs> judging how consumer behaviour reacts. And I think that's what they're trying to avoid by saying, don't get set for rate cuts because that would fuel that uh, optimism and euphoria that saw house prices boom so much. I always get, you know, every week, almost probably every day, we talk about interest rates because, you know, that's what you do as mortgage brokers. And, um, you know, I was fortunate to say that, you know, when I started my career in financial advice was in was in 2007 and 2008 when I was working in the UK and rates dropped to half a percent. And um, in the UK, they're still half a percent. And the reason why, you know, it's so hard for rates to rise is because it really takes steam out of the economy. So unless the economy is doing really well, they don't want to increase rates. And, you know, so while everyone thinks, oh, they must go back up, they must go back up. I've always inclined to kind of refer back to my experience there and think, actually, you know what, they're probably going to stay low because it's so hard to, to lift them. And while the RBA hasn't changed their rate for, I think it's almost two years now, in early December, they kind of came out and said, well, if the market does start to really perform poorly and we are struggling as an economy, we still have firing power in our tank and we would cut rates to half a percent or to zero. And, you know, we would use quantitative easing. And so the RBA is now saying, you know, look, that is an option now. And so the tune has kind of changed. So, um, you know, it's more likely to say that rates are going to stay low for a long period. Um, and, you know, NAB, you know, early December as well, you know, pushed out their forecast for rate cuts out to 2020 instead of 2019. So, you know, the big thing that I always focus on with clients is we don't really care what's happening with interest rates in the next kind of 12 months. What we look at is kind of the five-year fixed rate. And what that's doing is a really good idea. You know, it does show you where rates are going to go. And right now you can still get a five-year fixed rate for around 4%. 
You know, the kook had a lot to say about this too in episode 43. And remembering that even though we published this episode, I think in November, we interviewed him from memory in October. Interestingly enough, he calls himself a pessimist on property prices. And yet he's certainly not a sensationalist. I'd probably call him pragmatic. I was looking at another article I think it was, I can't remember exactly what paper it was in, but it was all the economists, a list of what their forecasts were for the future. And I think you were probably the one of the most yeah. more pessimistic economists out there. Could you give us an idea of your thoughts going forward? You probably were looking at the uh, Sydney Morning Herald, The Age mm-hmm. uh, survey at the start of the year, and I was pessimistic, and I am pessimistic on house prices. So you might think, well, why am I sort of offering this challenge? Uh, it, it's because that the housing market decline is happening. We, it's, it's got further to run, but for a 35 or a 40% fall in house prices, you're talking some of the horrible situation that we saw during the global crisis in Ireland, Spain, parts of the UK and the US, and we don't have those fundamentals here. We're not that bad. So what we're having, having to see is a, a price correction, I suppose, where we do see prices drop. We do see this tightening in credit having an impact, but... 40% fall, mm. not really, more likely 7 to 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of your um, parts on that was, you know, a lot of the, this was actually quite recent, so I'm not sure if it was that one, but um, you're, you, you were predicting that interest rates would be going down, but you were probably the only one, I think, out of the, the 30 economists that yes. was probably suggesting that. Yeah. I mean, you know, can you give us a bit more understanding of why yeah. you think that when everyone else thinks it's going up? Look, the Reserve Bank is saying it's going up too. They've said the next move is likely to be up, and of course, the, and, and they're the ones who said it, so you'd be have, you'd have to be pretty bold to go against it. But I, part of my experience was clouded by uh, when I was living in London when the GFC hit. I yep. remember looking out the window of the office one day in about 2008, I think it was, and there were people lining up at the Northern Rock Building Society, you know, the infamous Northern Rock, uh, and people had bags willing, uh, ready to withdraw their cash. A true bank run, and that frightened me very, very much. And that led to the sort of horrible situation in the UK that sort of spread markets. Now, that was the reason why I thought, well, we've got to sort of see how that sort of dynamic can play out here. And while we're not having that, as I mentioned, we're not having those big falls, we are having price falls. And the reason for the rate cut forecast is that we consumers are over half of the economy. Household spending is about 55%. So what we do with our money has a really big impact on jobs, inflation, the unemployment rate, these sorts of things. So if you think of a scenario where house prices were to fall, say, 10%, Mm. we've lost uh, somewhere around the order of uh, three quarters of a trillion dollars in wealth, if that happens. That's pretty significant for us Australians. Mm. At a time when we've also got very high levels of household debt, at a time when we've got very low levels of wages growth, so you think, well, how are consumers going to fund their spending? They can't do it through wages growth. We're not getting a decent wage increase. Can't do it through wealth accumulation because the housing market's falling and now just recently we've had the stock market coming off. So don't look at your wealth at the moment because it's not going to be a very good story. Mm. So you think, well, what's, what's the economy going to look like into sort of 2019? And it looks as if it'll be pretty weak. And yeah. with inflation under control, the Reserve Bank, with a cash rate of 1.5%, yes, it's low, but they can trim rates. Not to rescue the consumer necessarily, although it would help, but also to try to allow the non-consumer parts of the economy, business investment, which is very dependent on interest rates, Mm. to pick up. And so the business investment side of the economy would pick up the slack that's going to be coming from we consumers, not spending as much next year as we have in the last couple of years. If I could ask you to do one thing, could you please give us an iTunes review, some specific feedback on what we're doing well and what you love and what you've learnt from our podcast. I just want to share with you a review that we got on iTunes and we really value these reviews, not just because it's a bit of a pat in the back for us, we're actually getting our message across and that's a wonderful thing, but also it helps other people who are looking for a podcast to listen to understand what they're going to gain from listening and we really want to help spread the word so that people learn more so they make better decisions. So here's a great one. And thank you for whoever posted it. 
For anyone buying and or selling in the Australian market, these podcasts are a must listen. The insights are equally valuable on both sides of the coin, but I was able to use the information around when and why to be honest as a buyer and it worked. Offer accepted. Thank you, Veronica and Chris. Now, we love producing this podcast and we want to help many more people. So leave us an iTunes review. We'd love it. Or you can connect with Chris or I via the elephantintheroom.com.au. There's a lot of resources there for you. Connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn or Twitter. What's really missing from all the doom and gloom talk is actually an understanding that all markets and all properties don't actually operate in the same way. I mean, prices are more volatile in areas where investors made up the majority of buyers. Now, the risk really kicks in at above 30%. So where investors form more than 30% of the market, then you've got to be very, very nervous. So when we're talking about price falls, one of the big issues is that unsophisticated investors flocked to brand new and off-the-plan properties. So if you have a situation where a lot of people bought in the same building or subdivision at the same time, their interest-free periods will expire at the same time, and those you cannot afford to hold the property will all list them at the same time, and of course, there's going to be significant price falls. Yeah, and I think this is what we're going to see in 2019 really is, you know, a real, basically a flight to quality, you know, quality assets will stay really strong. And, you know, I refer back to my time in the UK as well, like parts of London, you know, and parts of New York did really well through the GFC and the credit crisis. And the reason why is that when times are tough and if there is a crisis in the world and we haven't even talked about it, but, you know, there is a high chance that, you know, at some point the bull markets to stock markets around the world will finish because they always do. And that could happen in 2019. And if that does happen, um, generally speaking, is people need to put that money into quality assets. And what would happen is, is that money would flow from poor assets to good assets. And I think that's what we'll see in 2019 is that the high rise apartments, the high investor stock parts of the market will really get hit, but the quality assets will be a bit of a flight to safety and, and money will flow into those areas. So in the GFC, for example, London and New York went up, even though the UK fell, and, you know, the US market got trashed. You know, with when it comes to property, location makes up, you know, 70 to 80% of the property's value. And sensible reporting would mean taking the time to understand that the established markets are not as susceptible to price falls. And not everything has fallen. I mean, I've given this example in a previous episode. In Balmain, for instance, you know, late in 2018, we bought a property that had sold in 2016. And there were People, there were a number of buyers on this particular property and it sold for around about 5% more than it sold in 2016. Now, that goes against all the media saying that everything is falling, okay? And look, I've written blogs on this in the past with case studies, blogs on people buying up immediately post-GFC, selling within 18 months and making an absolute mozza because they took advantage of all the doom and gloom and the fear out there. And and another case study, two properties in Lilyfield that sold in 2003 at the absolute height of the market, and then they both sold again in 2007. One made money, one lost money. Same market conditions, same suburb, similar price bracket. And it's, it's this deeper understanding that people need, and this is what frustrates me when I hear all this media stuff about the doom and gloom, But history also tells us, you know, beyond that, why this is the case. And Kent Lardner gave us a great illustration back in episode six. Now, when looking at historical data, Mm. how useful is that in predicting the future? Um, Look, uh, an interesting one is I I look, before the data sets became freely available, I knocked on the door of the old APM in the day, and uh, I got, uh, we were looking to buy our first property out at Coogee you know, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, just a unit. And I noticed something is really interesting. It was just a flat line through the, the tough times in the 80s. So, you know, a lot of markets dipped and down in Victoria and Melbourne, a lot of suburbs really dipped in the 80s. But Coogee and a lot of the eastern suburbs of Sydney stayed flat. Mm. And, and suddenly, so what that told me was, why did that happen? And, and then you start to realise that if it's old money or, you know, people are not highly leveraged, when things go bad, they don't need to sell. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, looking at, history and that's you know as as a good guide to the future of what's going to happen and I think we can already start to see this in the premium suburbs you know of Sydney Melbourne that you know the more that they fall the more cheaper they become and more people can afford them 
you know? And so what happens is, you know, let's say we'll use, you know, uh, we'll use Paddington as an example, right? And, um, you know, everyone knows Paddington in Sydney, premium suburb. Now, if Paddington, the more that price of Paddington falls, the more people say, hang on a sec, Paddington's an amazing suburb. I've always wanted to live in Paddington. Yeah, in this. I don't have to live in Maroubra if I can live in Paddington. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Um, you will get that bit of a, a flow on effect, but at some point everyone goes, I've just got to go in and get it. This is my chance. And so in premium suburbs, we're going to have a floor at prices where they become to a point where everyone will rush to sell their assets and they might not be in living in the inner ring. They could be living in the outer ring and they go, well, now the numbers can make sense. I will buy in there. And so the good suburbs always have a floor. When you can change As that. As in F-L-O-O-R. <laughs> yeah, the, the right type of floor. Yeah. But I mean, unfortunately, that's not the case when you go to the outer suburbs. And, you know, there really isn't a floor to the prices because, you know, the, the desirability of living in these suburbs is because of affordability. And, um, you know, they're not people are going to rush to move there because it's cheap, you know. Um, and so there isn't really a floor. And that is another worry, I guess, out of 2019 is that um, I do think that, you know, parts of the outer suburbs of Sydney will really be affected because, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot more supply in the outer rings than there are in the inner rings. And the best way to think about that is like an onion. You know, the <laughs> inner ring of an onion is much smaller than the next ring and then the next ring. And if you go to the outer rings of an onion, you know, there are a lot more onion than there is in the <laughs> inner rings. So, um, and um, that's supply, you know, so every part of that <laughs> is supply. And um, unfortunately, when there's lots of supply and there's not much demand, um, it could get quite messy. Well, it does, yes. It's a definite impact on prices. I thought what's particularly interesting around Kent's comments in that episode was that he referred back to the 1980s. So he looked at the data and he could see, you know, what had happened in that area. Um, and, you know, back then there was a recession and interest rates were around 18%. And so recent headlines have actually been comparing our current situation to that period. So once again, it just points to this you know, the importance of understanding the market fundamentals. You know, I mentioned earlier that location is the key to around 80% of a property's performance and the asset itself makes up the remaining 20%. You know, A-grade properties still get competition. We've had anecdotal evidence from pretty much every sales agent that we've interviewed and I saw it myself in December, which is normally a terrible time to auction, even in a boom. You know, when I went to an auction in Lane Cove, where there were 12 registered bidders, six of whom bid, and the property went way over the reserve price. Why is that? It's because it was a scarce asset. And in episode 17, Mark Foy, he's an agent in Surrey Hills, he really spelled it out. But do you find that there's a difference in quality when the market slows down? Do you find that there's sort of, it's harder to get those sort of A-grade properties? Yeah, yeah. Well, what we're finding with the market at the moment, your A-grade properties are still selling for A-grade prices. Mm. Yep. It's your yeah. B and C-grade properties that were getting A-grade prices in 2014, 15, 16, yep. 17 mm. yeah. Yeah, that aren't anymore. And then it's yep. owners who are struggling because they're scratching their head going, well, you know, a couple of years ago, I could get these prices. Why can't I? And it's really hard to tell an owner you've got to or a C grade yeah. property, you know, especially if you but, sold it to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's <laughs> but but it is you know like your good quality products, your good quality yeah. developers, your good quality areas and building. And like there's precincts within um, suburbs that yeah. are good quality, and you know it's uh, that's you've just got to you explain that to your owners and educate your owners. That's all you can do. Yeah, you're it's all you can do. And I guess that's smart to be honest because with a lot of buyers there seeing it as, you know, every property in Surrey Hills or every property in Darlinghurst, you can't lose because it's the suburb. Mm. But what you're seeing here is the A-grade properties within those suburbs are doing really well. Yep. Even though we're having this kind of shortage of buyers out there compared to what there was last year, but it's the B and C-grade. So really everything comes back to supply and demand. On the demand side, our issue at the moment is that owner-occupiers have been impacted by credit tightening, not just investors. Look, at some stage, the pendulum will swing back and some level of normality will return. And on the supply side, the key concept that every buyer needs to grasp is that of scarcity. An A-grade property is something that is in short supply and in high demand. And Peter Koulzos talked about this and how gentrification and scarcity are linked in episode 33. This is nothing new. Historically, scarcity is what drives higher price growth over the long term. And we discussed this with John Linderman in episode 26. But long-term growth, it's a really hard nut to crack because there are so many things that can 
change like interest rates and employment and, and the economy and so on. Mm. Uh, one of the biggest things you don't know is the rate of development in an area, you know, what's likely to happen that could change the nature of an area completely. But the the few indicators that when I've studied uh, the Australian housing market, and I've gone right back to 1901 and looked at the, you know, the overall performance of the market, which areas have performed better than others, and it's capital cities for mm. starters. So always buy, in, if you're buying for long-term growth, you need to buy in a capital city. Yep. And which parts of that capital city, it's always the well-established areas that go up percentage-wise more than the others. And then within those, if you want to narrow it down further, it's areas that have some unique benefit. Like, say, if you're looking at Sydney, it would be properties with a harbour view because there's only a limited number of those. Mm. And as Sydney grows in size, the percentage of, of houses with a view of the harbour diminishes as a percentage of the total. So they're the sorts of things, you know, you look for. Uh, it comes scarcity. Scarcity yeah. factor, yeah. Yeah. The harbour view, as an analogy, is a real kind of, is extremely scarce, you know, but scarcity doesn't need to be on that level. It mm. could just be, you know, that you are in a premium suburb on a great street. You know, there's only so many of those. Period home. Yeah, period home. Um, even like being on the, you know, a great north-facing block within those suburbs, that's scarce, right? You know, and so I guess when you're, you're looking at scarcity, you've just got to kind of go, is it really scarce, you know, and how many are coming on the market? And what's happening right now is that the turnover rate in Sydney for properties is, is really dropped, you yeah. know. I think about, you know, six, seven percent of properties were trading or swapping places, I guess, owners. Um, but now it's down to about four percent. And of that four percent, I'm sure the ones that are selling without any problems now are the real scarce ones. And, you know, if you did have a scarce asset, you probably wouldn't sell it right now because you go, well, I can't get the best price for this. I know it's a great asset. It's performed really well for me, you know, over many years. Um, I'm just going to ride this wave out. And so there's very few on the market. And as a buyer's agent, Veronica, do you see many good properties hitting the market now? And look, that is so true because one of the big problems with the buyer's market is that you know, and I know when I first started as a buyer's agent, I thought, ah, Ripper, I can't wait for my first buyer's market. Mm. The reality is that what you're saying is that absolutely true. There's more crap on the market in a buyer's market than there is good stuff mm. because exactly that. But also you've got to remember that scarce A-grade properties, people tend to turn over properties when they're not really happy in it. Mm. You know, and there is actually data that shows that north-facing, you know, houses with north-facing gardens trade less often than those with other aspects. There's actually data to support this and research to support this. So why is that? It's because when I've got a, a north-facing home, well, A, what am I going to upgrade to? Mm. You know, I'm not going to trade this for a south-facing home, am I? No. Mm. So you look around and you think, well, there's not that many properties that are better than mine. I'm, I have no need to move. I don't, what's the point? Yeah, and do you have the confidence right now to sell your property? You know, and that's the problem with upgraders right now. They want that north-facing block. And mm. I think about a client right now is that he's really keen to upgrade, really keen to upgrade. And, um, you know, the biggest challenge he has is that, A, finding a really good property, which he's struggled with for over 12 months. And so well, that is actually always an issue. And, and just as an aside there, you know, in my business, I will never have a big buyer's agency ever because when you have lots and lots of buyer's agents, they've all got to buy stuff. You know, you've got to give them quotas and you've got to push them out there to, to buy stuff, right? There's simply not enough quality property out there yeah. to have a big business in what I do. There isn't. It's actually a really small percentage of properties any good. Yeah, and I mean, he's looking at the like the lower North Shore, let's call it, and, you know, he's got a house there. It suits his family, but it's not going to suit his family long term. He wants a better asset, but, you know, he just can't find it, right? It's just not coming on the market. But well, also, you know, he should call us. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, the... Um, yeah, and that's so that's his problem. But the other problem he's having is that he wants to buy that before selling. Yeah. And, um, you know, the problem is that he's even if he does find it, he's got to have the confidence to buy it without selling, which is very tough in the current market because his current asset's not on the best, best street. It's on a busy road. And so even though it's a premium suburb, those assets are really struggling right now. So even the people who want to upgrade in this market, if they're trying to upgrade from a poor asset to a good asset, mm. they're not going to have that confidence. And so what they're going to do is they're going to try to, they'll have to potentially look to sell first, bank the money, and then they've got a huge risk that they might not ever get that quality asset because it might not come on the oh, market. When you're buying and selling, in fact, I'll whack a link to this blog. I've written a couple of blogs on this, the old how do you time buying and selling. And the fundamental decider 
has to come down to what's going to be the easiest thing to do. That's the thing you do second. So if selling's going to be the easiest thing, you buy first. If selling's going to be the hardest thing, you sell first. And that, that is actually fundamentally it. Current market conditions mean that anybody who's got anything other than an A-grade asset, and I know it's going to be difficult to find an A-grade asset, I get that, but when you find it, if you are not ready to buy it, which you're sort of not, if you haven't actually sold your, your C-grade asset, then you're behind the eight ball. You're actually not going to be the best position buyer for that property anyway. So the hardest thing to do is actually sell your C-grade asset. I'd be getting the C-grade asset on the market personally. Look, our message is clear. Whether you are buying a home to live in or an investment property, capital growth really needs to be a major consideration. And if it is your focus and you buy a quality asset in a sound location, you will be less panicked on the downward run of any cycle. You know, 2019 could be your year if you are ready to buy. You know, for people put off by the boom, what on earth are you waiting for now? So your biggest challenge might be selling your C-grade asset before you buy, but it also could be getting your finance sorted. So Chris is going to take you through steps here you need to take in order to get your loan approved. The major thing for 2019 is if you are buying quality assets, you know, it's not a seller's market, you know, they're not going that hot. So you can be a little bit more picky on price, but then you get the challenges when you get the real good stuff is it's competition again. So I have had lots of clients who bought last year and I know there's going to be lots of clients who buy this year, but you know, the ones that are going to be ready and they do think about their finances are going to be there available to take advantage of those opportunities if the market does keep falling. So the big thing you've got to really get your head around now is that um, lending has changed. You know, when you say 10 years ago, went to a bank and um, they looked at your situation, they'd say, oh, you can borrow $1.5 million. And you'd say, well, that's great. I only want $700,000. And so the banks would always lend you more than you probably wanted. And you were always trying to dial the bank back because the bank was trying to put you in too much debt. Now it's when you go to a bank because the prices are much higher and because lending is much lower, you want to borrow more than ever, but you can't borrow as much as ever. So, you know, you really need to understand that the game shifted and you need to get prepared for the bank because chances are you're going to want to borrow more than they're going to lend you. The other thing that's probably changed that I think is it's a, it's a mindset shift at the bank. You know, before when the markets are booming and they're going up, you know, they're happy to lend you money because from a risk point of view, if you default or you have to sell that property, they're not going to lose money because the price of the property is going to go up. At a bank now though, it's because they've, you know, built these big books of loans, they're all in what you call risk off and they're risk adverse. And they're now thinking through, well, what is the risk of this customer? If prices fall, if the lender, if the borrower, you know, loses their job, you know, what is the risk to the bank? And that is completely different mindset from an assessor as it was for the last five years. So when we're lodging applications now is we're saying, look, this is not a risk. This is a good customer. And we're doing, you know, almost a page of notes now for every application. But in the boom, we're probably only doing three or four lines. The mind we're going through is the assessor is going to decline this loan unless we justify 100% why this is a good loan. And, and responsible lending because of the Royal Commission is completely highlighted. The third thing to know about lending is that initially it was targeted at investors and borrowing capacities were reduced for investors. But because of the Royal Commission, there's been highlighted that the owner occupiers are now getting severely affected. And, and I, it's kind of been a word on the street, you know, brokers talking to brokers, you know, BDMs and banks. Um, and I do think, you know, from February, when you lodge an application, that all your living expenses are going to have to be verified. And you're going to have to send three months bank statements for every transaction that you spend. Now, banks can't you know, look at it and go, well, you just spent more that three months because it was a busy three months. They're just going to have to average that. And so don't do it over Christmas. Well, it's probably <laughs> Christmas is not a great time, right? Yeah. Because you're going to spend more money. You know, if you do it over winter, you're probably not going to spend as much money. But, um, you know, really though, it's not going to be an option. So a bank's going to have to look at every single dollar that you spend and they're going to look at every single credit card, every single um, loan that you have, and they're going to add it all up and say, that's what you're spending. Now, the truth is that most people are spending a lot more than the banks have been kind of using for living expenses for many years. And, and this change is going to happen. There's also going to be what you call comprehensive credit reporting coming in next year in 2020. Um, and, you know, what that's going to do is banks are going to know absolutely everything about your situation anyway. Um, so there's no way of hiding from this. You have to really think about your living expenses, what you're spending before you go to a bank, because they're going to look at everything. 
So when we lodge an application, you know, firstly, a broker is going to do a lot more notes, which I've just touched on. And, you know, we're going through everything that could possibly be a risk to the bank. We're identifying and saying why it's not a risk. You know, they've just gone back from maternity leave, but they've worked at the company for seven years. You know, they've just started from probation, but they've worked in the industry for 10 years. You know, um, there's lots of things that the bank might want to ask questions on, but as a broker, we're making sure that that's in our notes. But from a document point of view, it's always pretty simple. What you need to do is prove who you are. It's generally a driver's license and a passport. You need to prove what you earn. Now, generally that's your last two pay slips. But what I'd also, you know, suggest if you have had good years, I'd send your tax return, I'd send your PAYG and I'd send your notice of assessment. The more evidence you can provide to the bank, the better. Now, if you're self-employed, it's always going to be your last two years tax returns um, on top of your income as well. Then what you need to do is prove what you own. So all your shares, you know, your assets, like your, your properties, you need rates notice, um, any savings you've got, you know, if you've got super, I'd actually even attach that as well. I think you need to go over and above what they really want now, because it's only going to, if it's got more assets, they're going to more likely lend you the loan. Now, this is the big one. I think going forward, if you really want to borrow money from the bank, you've really got to minimize every single debt that you have. Now, I'm pretty ruthless with this. I mean, pretty much every client we're lodging now is I'm, I'm advising them to close down all their credit cards. Uh, you know, if they've got leases that they're not getting, you know, tax advantages from with a car or things like that, then I really ask them to question whether they're getting value from that because it's really hurting their serviceability when they're borrowing loans. So every, I wouldn't go nowhere near after pay. Um, and payday lenders, um, banks hate them regardless because they're taking market share from them. Um, and really, it's not a good sign if you're having to put a $200 shirt on Afterpay. So I wouldn't use any of those type of lenders. Um, I'd really look at your HEX. Um, it's a bit of a thing that people forget about. Um, if you get rid of your HEX, that helps your servicing. So any loan or any debt, I'd try to limit them and get rid of them basically. Um, now, the final one is proving your living expenses. And there's no easy way to do this. You really have to basically live, you know, a life that you're kind of comfortable with post getting the loan and you have to kind of do it for at least three months. And so, you know, there's no way of getting around it because you're going to have to provide that evidence. So you really need to think about that because this is a new norm that didn't exist a couple of years ago. Now, before you lodge the loan, you have to get your story right. You have to make it very clear to the bank what you're trying to achieve prior to lodging, because they're not just going to go, oh, I want to buy a property and they're going to just give you a pre-approval. They want to know what type of property it is, you know, why it's not a risk to the bank. Um, if you have any gaps or any problems with your credit, you need to either fix them or identify them with the bank prior to lodging. So if you have had a, you know, a missed payment on the credit card, put a story on your application why you missed that payment. Or if you had a year off in the last three years of work, you know, explain that you went traveling or that some reason there, don't let the bank start thinking what, why was there a gap? You know, you want to be ahead of the game. The final thing is that, you, you know, really, I would really encourage, you know, people entering the market just now to knuckle down, just keep saving. Um, the more savings that you have is best better for you because you could potentially borrow less, you could have more buffers, but it looks really good for the bank when we lodge an application that they can see that you're saving what the mortgage repayment would likely be per month. And now I use rental, you know, income and I say, look, on the application, the the client has been renting for $700 a week for the last three years and has not missed a repayment, you know, because that shows that you're a good customer and you can support the debt. So while, you know, it might feel a bit overly pedantic and over the top, this is what I think you need to do to make sure when the assessor looks at your file, they want to approve it. The final thing is I would use a broker, you know, not just because I am a broker, because a broker is going to know your gaps. And if you're a borrower that could borrow money from every bank because you're such a good customer, you've got, you know, really high income, really high savings, then you might just use the best bank that's going to give you the best rate. Unfortunately, though, with the new lending landscape, not every person's situation is perfect and a good broker will know what lender would more likely look at your situation more positively then, you know, potentially decline your loan. So you may even get the best rate at that lender, but if it's not the best rate, that's okay because your loan's still going to get approved and not declined at maybe that bank that give you the best rate. So, you know, you do have to take lending very seriously. You do have to, you know, lodge your application in the best condition, one shot and get it through rather than the back and forth game that, you know, did happen in the past. 
Well, that's an excellent rundown of what's required in order to get your finance ready. I think one of the biggest issues and one of the biggest causes of this most recent downturn has been the lack of available credit. So put yourself in a position where you can get credit and then you can actually pick and choose what property you want to buy and be very careful on the price you pay. You can set yourself up really well for the future. Now, we'll include links in the show notes for all the episodes that we referred to in this podcast. We'll also put the blog links that we've mentioned and our free checklist of all the documents you're going to need in order to get your bank approval. And remember to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you, particularly what your biggest aha moment has been from this episode. Please join us for our next episode when we tackle the big contentious issue of Labor's negative gearing policy. It's looking increasingly like Labor is going to form a government in 2019 and they are pretty clear on their intention to push through their negative gearing policy, which is going to have some pretty big impact on the property industry, the property market. Well, we're both fairly certain a lot of those consequences are fairly unintended on the part of the Labor Party. So we're going to get into that. We're going to specifically refer back to episodes where we've had experts talking about this issue. And we're going to give you an overview of what we think will happen to the market, what you should be doing about it. So tune in. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk and edited by Gordy Fletcher. And thank you so much for joining us and letting us your eardrums throughout 2018. We've absolutely enjoyed bringing everything to you. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for your messages. Thank you for your reviews. And we're looking forward to more and better in 2019. And I second that. It's been an amazing year and we do appreciate every single one of our listeners for supporting us. We can't wait to bring you some even better content in 2019. And a happy new year. Happy new year. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.